Welcome to the Bonsai Time Podcast. Today on the podcast we are doing something a little bit different. We are actually going to travel back in time, almost exactly two years to May of 2020, when I first had the idea to start a Bonsai Podcast. So at that time, I hosted a Zoom call with Andy Bello and Julian Tsai, two other apprentices in the Bonsai world. Andy was a starting out as an apprentice and intern at the beginning phases of working at the National Bonsai Penjing Museum in Washington, D.C. Julian, at the time, had just come back from his apprenticeship in Japan where he was working at Koka and Bonsai Nursery. And Julian is now based out of the LA, San Diego area, and Andy is still in DC, and he is now the assistant curator of that collection. So, enjoy the interview. You get to hear about bonsai around the world from the apprentice perspective. And uh, at the end of the interview, the last half, there's a new segment, which I have never released before. And that segment is one where I collected submissions from my readers uh, for trees that they were wanting advice on. And these trees, Andy and Julian and I discussed, and we laid out the path that we would take if that tree was in our collection, and some different styling ideas and ideas for health of these trees. So, hope you enjoy that, and hope you use that section to practice your own thinking about bonsai. And if you're listening to this in the podcast version, I'll have pictures of all the trees that we discussed in the show notes so you can practice your own thinking by going there or by going to the video version. We hope to do more content like this in the future. So if you have a tree that you would like us to discuss in the future, you can submit it at our website, bonsaitimepodcast.com. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? Yep. How are you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you? Doing well, just chilling, chilling. Hey, what's up? What up, Julian? How you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, how about you? Good. I was just napping. <laughs> <laughs> Been super busy over at the museum, just keeping up with all the spring work. In DC, we're already like pretty much like it's feels like summer today, so just chasing back a lot of growth. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Is the museum open to the public as well, or are you just doing maintenance? Uh, no, it's just open uh, to like essential employees, so not even like all of our gardeners at the Arboretum are there. Like I was driving around the grounds, and everything is just very overgrown right now. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the, the same deal at uh, our local collection here in Southern California. I think the, the curator and some staff still manage it, but it has been open for the uh, past few months. Mm. Mm. Well, hopefully things will open up soon. But uh, at least we can talk about bonsai while we wait. Always, always. So, Julian, without looking at the show notes, do you want to pick a random number, one through eight? Uh, sure. Uh, five. Okay. Uh, what is your biggest bonsai pet peeve? Uh... Uh. <laughs> oh, actually, you know, off the top of my head. Hold that thought. You can think about it because we should probably introduce ourselves. I didn't. I kind of forgot about that. Uh-huh. People might not uh, 
people might watch without knowing who all of us are. Yeah, yeah. So you can go first, Julian, I guess. Um, so uh, welcome for those who don't know me. Um, I'm Julian uh, Tsai. I came back from a brief stint uh, about the past year and a half to two years, uh, I spent in uh, Osaka Prefecture, Japan, um, where I, I pursued an apprenticeship at Kokaien. Um, before that, I've been uh, on and off involved in bonsai, starting from Southern California, and I kind of got more uh, invested. And I think it was in 2017, I was working out in the Chicago areas. And um, I met up with the, the owner out there uh, at the Hidden Gardens, uh, Jeff Schultz. And I also at that time, I met um, Owen Reich, who was a former apprentice um, at Kokayan. And I kind of got the ball rolling from there uh, to pursue bonsai kind of as a interest and passion and a potential career path for me. Um, but nothing too much has been going on right now. Um, I've been stuck at home with uh, quarantine and whatnot. Um, but just looking at the future in a positive note and we'll see how things go. That was well said, Julian. I guess I'm, uh, my name is Andy, Andy, Andy or Andrew Bello. People, I go by both. Um, I was the intern or apprentice as I guess you could say, it's the first curator's apprentice at the National Bonsai and Penjang Museum. I'm currently working there still. Um, and I'm go going to transition into the assistant curator position there. Um, working with the curator Michael James who has been doing a really great job of just keeping the health of the collection looking amazing and really taking a keeping the artists that you know works moving towards their vision but also considering the health of the trees which always is a constant uh, conversation over collections I know but it's he's been doing a great job and uh, I love working there and I guess me starting into bonsai I move I grew up in Illinois near the Chicago collection um, in Glenview, Illinois, is where I lived. And then I moved to Arizona for school. Didn't really do bonsai much. My friends were growing some sequoias in their room, like with my room, like my friends were doing, had grow lights and they had some trees inside. Didn't last very long, they all died. <laughs> and I was like, dang, that's pretty cool. And I kind of got a little bit more interested. Moved to Oregon to breed koi and goldfish um, for this company. And then that kind of introduced me to Japanese koi breeding and culture. And through that, I started getting into bonsai more. Then I worked at a bonsai nursery. Um, and it was more like a field grown stuff. Some collected uh, shore pines, collected port orchid cedars. This is on uh, the Bandon, in, it's Bandon, Oregon, which is on the coast. So it's a beautiful place. If you can, I definitely recommend getting out there. It's called Driftwood Bonsai. Just the whole mm -hmm. coast of, the whole coast from California up is just amazing. Where and, along uh, the Oregon coast is that? That's like south central. If you know, where, it's like south of Newport. About okay. Or it's you know where Coos Bay is. I don't know where Coos Bay is, but I know where Newport is. It's south of Newport, about an hour and a half. Okay. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. The shore pines are just like so windswept, and there's beautiful mm -hmm. state park over there, and so that's where a lot of my inspiration comes from, I guess. Uh, that nursery I worked at and that environment around there it kind of opened the door for me to kind of I would go five five days a month and just wire trees in the ground wire style raw material like he would pretty much let me choose anything I wanted and just he's like okay here's like five plants for your a day here's a tree for each day you're here and then also like some work that I need help with 
and I would just kind of really crappily wire things. And then he would just be like, oh, this is like, you know, a better way to do this. And you kind of critique my work without very hands off until after I had done it. So that was kind of cool because it let me kind of see, learn from making mistakes, which is yeah. very important in bonsai as we all doing yeah. bonsai have know very well. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good way of learning. Uh, I think maybe all three of us have had similar experiences in that kind of informal volunteering for a nursery like i volunteered for den robinson at a london also about like once every week for two or three years while i was an undergrad here and julian you did you volunteer at hidden gardens in chicago was that right uh yeah i i um i was only out there for about you know, three months so i i did some work um for jeff and and helped at the chicago uh bondi show uh midwest bondi show um, out in Southern California, um, before I went to Japan, uh, I did do some volunteering out with uh, Huntington Gardens, which is our uh, big collection out here. Um, so I, I'd say before uh, the apprenticeship, uh, bonsai for me was largely, um, you know, a self-pursued interest and hobby, you know, just trying to teach myself, practice on, you know, material I had access to or people who had trees. Um, so it, it was like that for, I'd say, good four or five years or so before I really could start um, accelerating, getting nicer stuff to work on and, you know, furthering uh, the practice in Bonza. Gotcha. Yeah. Just to introduce myself real quick, uh, I'm Ryan and I've been doing bonsai since I was eight, but I always tell people those first 10 years I kind of wasted because I was growing the trees indoors and I had like one bonsai book by Colin Lewis that I'd always like kill a tree, go back to the book, flip through it, reread it, and then kill a tree. Um, so it wasn't until I came out to Seattle and started like really immersing myself in all of the mountains and the nature around, and then I stumbled on Dan Robinson's that I started getting more intense inside. Like seeing kind of the really serious people and what they could do made me more motivated to try to like spend more time on more time and energy. But before I was just kind of like very fascinated, but I didn't know the whole process of getting to one of those like top tier trees. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Have you thought of your pet peeve for bonsai yet? Uh, yeah, I, I have thought of one. And I, I guess this is kind of like um, maybe other people share the, the same sentiment for you know, those who are current professionals or, or trying to be. And I feel a lot of the, the kind of bonsai culture and mindset, um, especially in the U.S., is people want, you know, like really accelerated uh, results. Um, uh, they want the work, you know, to look good now, the tree to advance um, to a refinement stage now. Um, but, you know, developing bonsai is a very uh, long-term and invested endeavor. And in a tree's life, you know, there's different stages of development where you're growing different aspects of the tree, the, the body root spread, uh, trunk, branches, and so forth. And if you try to like accelerate that process and you want such a high degree of refinement um, early on in the tree's development, uh, more often than not, um, you take shortcuts, you know, compromising on the tree's you know, structure, the quality that, you know, in the long term uh, hinders the growth. Um, so I guess a, a pet peeve of mine is, is sometimes uh, if people, you know, want me to take something that's, you know, really not at the stage to be work on uh, for health um, or, or other reasons, but, you know, they expect, 
um, you know, a really refined uh, result that you see in some of the work in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, kind of what other people told me is that, you know, bonsai, you could say it's like um, maybe 60, 70% the tree and 30, 40% the artist. Um, so, you know, you do have some control to exert over, um, you know, the result and the direction of the tree. Um, but at the same point, uh, you should kind of use the tree as a guideline to see what you can and can't do. Um, take the good and bad attributes, understand the health and the horticulture uh, to bring out, you know, a sustainable result. Um, I kind of went into that a bit deeper, but I, I guess a pet peeve is um, I, I don't like uh, people expecting instant, uh, instant bonsai because there's no such thing. Mm. It's kind of interesting because I feel like in one sense, training in Japan, like the nursery culture, would you say kind of like prioritizes speed of development? Like they might try to grow from seed as fast as they can and things like that. But on the other hand, they know everything there is to know about the horticulture, basically, to know like how to do that safely, I guess, how to push trees to their limit without killing them or things like that. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Uh, Andy, do you have any pet peeves yet? Um, kind of. I guess going off of what Julian said, that's like, I've always thought about that too. And from my perspective, working in a collection, it's like, you know, people come and see, you know, John Knock is Goshen, and you're like, they're like, oh my gosh, like, how do I have one of those? And I'm like, they just think it is very insane, you know. We, I, we don't have a, a lot of educational stuff around. Um, we do have things kind of in and out depending, but it's like, I'm not there to tell them, you know, people think that bonsai is an instant thing and they don't like realize that it's like the top tier of like what you're getting to. And like in any of the collections, it's like, it, it's cool for people to see, but I think it'd be cool if a little bit to have, uh, like I know Aaron Packard for a little bit when he was over at the national collection did a kind of, step-by-step step, like exhibit of like this is creating because called becoming a bonsai and i thought that was yeah. cool like for people to kind of understand that process especially like thinking outside of you know getting more people into bonsai you, they got to really establish that first because they're going to get really out of it really quick and i mean also going off that like i that kind of my pet peeve too i guess one of my big ones i guess which is what julian said going off of that also is like the, if you're doing bonsai for the final result you probably should not be just buying nice trees that are already completed and not trying to develop your own because unless you I mean that's the whole fun of bonsai for a lot of us I think is that that process part I mean it is a process art and there really is a never a finish I mean it could get in a collection but then you know it's just symmetry forms and then you got to remove things and it's always changing so mm -hmm. that and then my other personal pet peeve I guess would be like just people being so closed-minded to other like styles and being like very like almost overly loyal to different artists and like I am I can see my sense kind of like I'm like I very much like Dan and I very like I came and spent time with Dan uh last year up in uh Bremerton and I learned a ton from him and it's really interesting like to hear what other people on the east coast say about you know Dan and his styling and what people have said about that and it's like you know why can't you just appreciate his art for what it is or why can't you appreciate Nick Len's art for what it is it's not you like you can not like it but that doesn't mean it's wrong and that's kind of my thing it's like just because someone does something different people are like oh that's like not bonsai but you're like well isn't bonsai an art and how is there a right or a wrong in art that's kind of my biggest pet peeve mm. yeah there I don't know if it's 
true in other countries. Maybe Julian can comment on this since he worked in Japan for a while. But it does seem like, at least online, the American bonsai community, by and large, has like a strict style preferences. Like they like trees that look like every tree in Japan and, you know, kind of a dome and all that and less deadwood or maybe certain types of deadwood. Like they don't like softwood, um, you know, hollows on maples, for example, or at least some people I've met don't like that. Um, I forget where I was going with this, but <laughs> definitely seems like that is a big topic of conversation in both sides. I, Julian, do you think that the Japanese bonsai community is like more or less open-minded than the American bonsai community? Well, I, I guess you have to look at it in this way. I, I would say, you know, in the U.S., the bonsai community is, is primarily a, a hobbyist-driven uh, community um, from its, you know, interest points and, you know, the, the members who comprise it. Um, but, you know, for nurseries in a Japan, um, it's a, it's a business. Um, so the kind of motivation and criteria is different. Um, so when professionals generally um, work and make on trees, um, you know, to some extent there's some, you know, artistic freedom or, you know, depending on how, uh, you know, financially secure that nursery is and its relationship with customers, um, the, the owner or artist, you know, may have some more flexibility in doing what they want to do. Um, but ultimately, you know, you uh, make trees that appeal to the, the customer base um, or trees that are going to do well um, in the, the, the main, the large shows in Japan. Um, so there's uh, the Kokufu, which is uh, well known out in uh, Tokyo. It's the, the, the arguably, you know, the best bonsai show, um, as some people say, um, out closer to, to where I was. They have uh, the Taikon 10 which is out in Osaka. And the quality level of that show is not as high as the Kokufu, but the interesting about, uh, thing about that show is you see a lot of more uh, diversity in species and some kind of uh, uh, quirky uh, trees here and there. Um, so maybe um, the consistency and quality level is not as high, but I would say the variety of interest um, is a lot more. And of course, there's uh, the professional show, which is called the Sakafu. Um, so, you know, going back uh, to that question, um, at least as far as what I've seen, you know, you can argue there's like this uh, Japanese aesthetic in terms of like proportion and cleanliness and how they uh, create their trees. Um, but I'd say from artist to artist, there's definitely uh, some nuance. Uh, say, for example, in, in my nursery, uh, traditionally, at, at least, um, in the past, uh, my Oikata's preference um, in styling and selling trees is to have extremely clean, uh, sharp lines and designing the foliage pads because he knew that's what would sell well for his customers. And uh, especially for um, uh, nowadays in Japan, we get a lot of uh, buyers and brokers, mainly from China and some from Europe. Um, those kind of trees just tend to sell well. Um, but if you look at some nurseries, you know, of, of a famous one, uh, maybe uh, uh, Shinzi Suzuki's, um, a lot of his foliage pads um, are designed with intentions to be a lot uh, softer in image, for a, you know, arguably a bit more uh, naturalistic. Um, I think these are uh, small differences in nuances in the overall look, but I would say the, the core of bonsai in terms of design and technique, it's still uh, quite similar amongst all other professionals. 
and in Japan, and this might be a, a culture thing, you know, there's not so much uh, in terms of, you know, individuality, you know, standing apart from others in terms of, you know, the design and, and uniqueness, um, but more of, you know, taking a very nuanced approach and, you know, the small, subtle uh, uh, changes and aspects of something that give it, you know, that's something you can appreciate and gives it a nice quality without detracting or taking away from the initial intention. So uh, that's probably more in line with some uh, cultural values. But I would say in U.S., we do see a lot of you know, variety and interests and in, in different types of, uh, of bonsai styles and kind of how the hobbyists would like to practice it. Um, I would say in Japan, it's more uniform, but you do see differences among some professionals. You'd probably have to spend a lot of time, and if you were to tour a bunch of different nurseries in Japan, you'd probably have to spend a lot of time studying the trees in each one to notice those differences, it seems like. But it would be cool to do. Yeah. yeah. That was like really well said, I feel like, about what, how Julian put it. Um, and I mean, I can even notice, like, too, like, I read through all the Kogafu books. I have, we have them all at the museum, and I just flip through them at my lunch break. Usually, I just kind of, like, and just whatever. And looking at all those, like, you can really see those, like, little nuances, especially, I feel like a good example was Shinji Suzuki, like, his pad. I don't know if you saw uh, the Taikon 10 Prize, the Prime Minister Award Juniper he had on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that tree, wow. The, like, I was about like, the, the last Taikon 10. Yeah, with the sun in the background. Oh, yeah, I was, I was there. So. Yeah, <laughs> that one, I would, yeah. to see that tree in person, I'm pretty envious <laughs> of you because I saw some videos of that. I'm like, you can, like, that, I like that little nuance that he has. But then I also, like, see your styling that you're doing, uh, you know, at, your, at the nursery you're with. And it is beautiful in its own way where it is a lot sharper. And I think that, yeah, and the, then you, like, we're talking about the U.S. It's here, it's with the hobbyists, you know, you can just do whatever the hell you want because it's, not people aren't trying to sell for that and it's like more i feel like more raw materials being said people aren't really willing to spend that much money on a tree for that is you know been cared for that long because the value in that is i feel like a lot of times undersold even in japan i, I could be wrong but um i feel like that is here at least too mm -hmm. that is probably true and i think maybe oh or i don't know if it's just us because we're younger but Andy, you mentioned this earlier that you were saying you take more joy in creating something new than like getting a tree that's already established. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's my mindset too. Like I would rather go collect a tree myself and watch it evolve and buy one that someone else has collected and already styled. And then you're just kind of making more minor modifications. If, if in my mind, I don't have like a dramatic change for the tree, I don't think I would invest money in it. But yeah. Yeah. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I had That's also true. <laughs> it's also a matter yeah, of not having money. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Andy, do you want to pick a number from one through eight? Uh, let's do seven. Okay. And we're going to try to keep this one a little shorter so that we can go get to the tree section at the end. Yeah. Uh, what is your best advice for newcomers to bonsai? Oh, that's like, hmm. I'd probably just to keep it short would probably just don't get bummed out when you kill your first tree or your second one or your third one or hundreds of them really. I mean, if you, if you kill them or if you lose branches or cut the wrong one off, if it's still alive, try to grow something else and, you know, take it as a whim. I think John Naka, when he used to break a branch said, 
it wasn't supposed to be there anyway. So, you know, mm. it's you kind of just got to not be too hard on yourself when you kill things. I kill trees still, luckily at home, not at work. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that yeah. you're only going to get better by practicing and read horticulture, like learn, get your horticulture down and learn the basics yeah. of bonsai. And then if you want to do weird stuff and fun stuff like Nick Lenz or Dan was doing, then I think it's nice to do that. I mean, you can do that whenever, but I think it's kind of nice to have the more traditional approach so you understand the basics and can care for the plant and a healthy plant that's unstyled and is way more beautiful than a dead styled plant. So that's my advice. Yeah, that's probably true. Do you have any uh, advice for newcomers, Julian? Um, yeah, I, w I would say, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, to find trees and find people um, in person. Uh, bonsai is, uh, you know, really an art and practice uh, that you learn by uh, doing and seeing. And it's not so much by, you know, there's a lot of great resources, you know, on the internet now and a lot of uh, different professionals on providing, you know, various educational content and lessons and programs. Um, and, you know, those, those are all really um, um, helpful, but, you know, bonsai, you know, you, you got to see the trees and you got to put it into to practice um, to, you know, to really learn and, and get into it. Um, so as a newcomer, you know, I, I would definitely, you know, seek out a local club, um, local nursery, you know, a lot of times they even have like free resources to help you learn. Um, it's a good way to start out um, than necessarily trying to do everything yourself or, you know, rely on, you know, you know, purely, uh, uh, you know, written or, or visual education, you know, from videos or online, um, you know, which are good, but have their limitations. Yeah, I, I think that's a good piece of advice. Like none of us three at least would be where we are in bonsai without having these networks of people that are more experienced to ask for advice from and learn from in person, especially. Uh, I have question for both of you, maybe more for Andy, because towards the end of this summer, I'm going to be moving across the country. So I have like a especially keen interest right now in how bonsai is done in different parts of the world. Because I feel like, you know, here in Seattle, we don't have to overwinter our trees very much. So every part of the world like has some local pecu peculiarities, you know, about how they mm. do bonsai. So uh, Andy, is there any major differences you notice, for example, in how the clubs work from where you were in Oregon and in DC or uh, in how you have to take care of your trees? Like, and also as part of this question, are there any species that you wanted to take from Oregon but had to leave behind because of the differences in climate? Um, yeah, so I guess the first part of that about being in different, what I've experienced at least from Oregon to DC is there strong or huge I lived in Eugene Oregon I know Portland is like an epicenter for bonsai like really is just killing it out there like mad shout out to everyone out there that's like part of that community and supporting it and doing their thing all those professionals are just really good that live there and um you know Eugene's a lot smaller it was a town of about 1800 or I think it was it was, it was small I mean mostly a university town the club, I was definitely like one of the younger people in there for sure. Um, and a lot of good advice from everyone. And it felt more of like a family out here. I haven't really joined any uh, societies yet. Um, well, I was about to join one Brookside Bonsai Society, but um, then 
coronavirus happened, so that no meetings right now. But um, the one thing I've noticed out here from talking to people that have been here longer than me and kind of my thing with DC is it's a very uh, transient place. People come work for the government and then maybe go on detail to another, to work for the government in a different state. So I feel like the community around the collection itself could be a lot stronger. Um, and I think that people kind of, there's been some, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to say this in a way that won't get me blasted in the comments or something, but like there's people that, you know, people kind of don't, maybe they clashed a little bit and caused some divides between the clubs. And um, I could see that as an outsider, but I'm trying to start a study group and kind of get a more community kind of built around myself and about like, and just kind of do bonsai with friends. I mean, that's the main, for me, bonsai of being a curator, like trying to be a curator one day of a collection mm -hmm. is I really value the collaborative effort uh, of, what bonsai can be if it's collaborative with. You can do it by yourself if you want, but I think it's really fun to have different inputs into one tree and, you know, work through designs. And that's something that I don't feel like I have here as much. And I think that's just because I'm newer here. And I mean, going to the tree, yeah, I think that's the biggest difference probably. It's just a, city, a big city compared to a small town is the difference mm -hmm. for me. And then uh, going to the trees, I was just talking about that this morning while I was uh, over at the collection with one of the guys I'm working with. And I was talking about how bad I want uh, mountain hemlocks because they're just so, man, that foliage is just amazing. And I would love to have that. And maybe uh, I'm sure people have grown them here for a long time. And that might be something I also get told is like you can grow them here, but I'm not willing to risk a beautiful tree like what the mountain hemlocks I've seen are like to try to grow it here. I know Nature's Way, they have them up there in Harrisburg, but that's two hours north of me. And just that little bit of difference, DC is humid and hot and the winters are not that cold. So they don't, they don't very last very long here. Larch as well would be another species I wish I could have. Yeah, I, I'm in that scenario right now with, cause I have mountain hemlocks, Western hemlocks and subalpine fir. All, this is uh, like a Western hemlock, mountain hemlock hybrid. And hmm. you know, they, grow very densely so nicely on their own. Like you just have to, once you set the basic branch structure, they'll kind of fill in for you and then you just go in and pick the ones that you don't want. But uh, especially since a lot of those were ones that I collected, I have a, they're my favorite trees out of all of the ones here. And uh, I asked some people online, I haven't found anyone in Ohio that grows Mount Hemlock yet, but people told me it should be possible so I might, what I might do is I might leave them, leave my bigger ones here with Dan and then like bring some of the younger ones and just test, see if they can grow there with some shade cloth or something. Yeah, definitely and, give it some time before you bring the big ones because I know large could survive in DC for about five years and then they just oh, really? slowly, they slowly put her out. So mm. don't get too excited like too fast with it is my recommendation for that. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because I, it might also have a lot to do with your microclimate i heard uh there was something i think dan told me about someone that was growing larch in a kind of warmer place and what they would do is with they would put the larch on the ground every night which somehow made them experience cooler temperatures get more dew compared to if they were higher up so maybe there are little things like that that i could do but we'll find out yeah your back's gonna hurt if you're doing that with the big ones every day <laughs> yeah i might just leave them on the ground forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh julian did you notice anything different i also feel like 
one thing I'm thinking about as I'm considering moving from Seattle to Columbus is like have clubs do things differently and I could try to take some ideas from this club to from the Seattle club to the Columbus club or something. Uh, Julian, do you know anything about what the LA club is up to? I know that they're doing a lot more YouTube content recently. Uh, yeah. Uh, the LA's kind of has its own, uh, uh, in, in some ways, like uh, segregated bonsai scene. I'm from the rest of the U.S. It's kind of the the quote unquote original bonsai scene, at least in the U.S. For you know when bonsai started to get momentum in stateside. So because of that, we have you know a lot of uh, really old clubs here that have a lot of you know history and some older members and you know some cool things going on about it. Um, but but on that. Uh, on that same side, it's kind of like um, both a plus and I, I, I guess a negative that, um, you know, some people are there kind of more content and just doing bonsai however they enjoy it or however they see it. And maybe the, the clubs aren't as so receptive um, to, you know, learning more or, or um, doing some change. Um, I, I'll say recently, um, um, yeah, you, you have seen some more stuff, um, at least on social media. Um, we have the California Bonsai Society, which is uh, led by uh, Bob Pressler. And, you know, he's been making a large effort um, the, of recent years to bring in, you know, artists um, outside um, Southern California and even uh, internationally to kind of give some more exposure and diversity in the community. And uh, you see, um, uh, we have, um, if you know, a, a Doyle, uh, Doyle uh, Saito, um, and he runs... Um, a, uh, they do uh, Facebook live streaming uh, for the Daiichi Bonsai Club. So sometimes you might see that um, on, on Facebook. And uh, another guy, um, Tom Wall, he's uh, at uh, Baikyuan Bonsai Club, which is uh, a local here to the LA Arboretum. And he's recently been uh, making an effort to get out a lot of videos, you know, of the local club members and different artists to kind of to showcase, you know, what, you know, bonsai is around this area. Um, so I would say, um, you know, it's all, they're all doing a pretty good job and kind of trying to progress uh, the community more. Um, you know, since I've, uh, the timing's pretty bad <laughs> since I've gotten back. Um, it's not a good time to, oh, yeah. lot, um, to get involved. Um, but, you know, before I went to Japan, um, you know, I was, I was in school, I was in, uh, in, in college so I, I wasn't as I didn't have too much time to be really active on um, in the club team um, so I would just attend some meetings here and there um, all the local shows um, but but I do hope uh, now that I've been back um, hopefully in, in the future when things uh, the timing is better um, um, to get to know the clubs a bit better involve myself in the community um, but <laughs> What was the, the question? Oh, I was just wondering uh, some of the things that the LA club is up to. Uh, that's a pretty good, pretty good list of what the activity is like. Uh -huh. in the area. It's yeah. kind of interesting because did you come back right before COVID came? So I, I came back um, about like mid end of January. Um, oh, okay. So that's when, you know, COVID yeah, like one month before the lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, you know, at the time I left Japan, that's when uh, there's like a kind of a lot of the concerns and, and scare going on in Asia because they have, um, there was um, in 2002, there was uh, a SARS, uh, which is, you know, the same, uh, same type of virus as, you know, COVID-19, but different strain. And that was a really big deal back then in some countries. Uh, 
had a had a bad experience and kind of memory with it. So when they saw COVID, you know, uh, some companies really jumped into gear because they they've had already the experience in the past and were very cautious and worried. Um, so when I saw that happening there, I was like, oh, you know, I'm 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 escaping <laughs> Did that... from the virus in a sense, and I just came mm. here to the U.S. and pretty much the same thing is going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. so... Uh, were you uh, trying to escape on purpose? I mean, uh, like, did COVID speed up your timeline for leaving? Uh, no, that was just purely coincidental, um, mm. the whole COVID situation happening. I already intended to come back stateside around this time. Okay. Lucky timing then, or unlucky in some ways. <laughs> Lucky in others. At least you didn't have to quarantine when you got back. <laughs> have you gotten to do any hikes since you came back, Julian? Yeah, I've, I've 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 done a little bit of hiking um, around uh, the I, I guess the SoCal High Mountains, um, mm. the maybe around like eight thousand feet or so. Um, I, I just came back from from uh, Joshua Tree like oh. a few days ago, mm. uh, so that was that was pretty nice. And kind of planning in my head uh, when I come to. When I go to Ohio for grad school, I want to come back to the West like at least once a year to do a big hike or something like that. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I, I, you've done like a lot of hiking around Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, it's kind. I've kind of fallen in love with it. Um, actually, after we're done here, I'm going to go camping today. So <laughs> pretty good I mean, yeah, social that. distancing, you know? Yeah, the, the, the trails and the, the national parks out there are really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I look forward to exploring new places around Ohio. Though I'm I'm already like thinking in my head, okay, where can I get all the yamadori? Like maybe on people's farms, go <laughs> to Michigan. I don't know. National forest out there. Yeah, well, out here it's pretty easy to find. Uh, you know, we have all those logging roads. Oh yeah, yeah. They they make a, a nice road for you to use, and then they leave it behind after they're done logging. So. But I, I haven't figured it out in Ohio yet. I'll probably explore next spring and see what there is. So I think we're going to move on to the, the trees that were submitted. Okay, sounds good. Let's see. So I mentioned, I was thinking for the trees that were submitted, we could all like rotate one, two, three, um, giving our advice. I'll, I'll read off what they sent in and you guys can give your advice or how you might style it. And if we have like alternative uh, perspectives, feel free to chime in with that. Um, so Julian, I'll have you do the first one. The first one is from Christopher. He sent a Eastern red cedar, which is, uh, Juniperus virginiana, and it's a Yamadori. Mm-hmm. The tree grew in a low-light environment and has a slender primary trunk with minor movement. There are three low branches, uh, not quite low or big enough to be considered trunks, and only one-third viable outside of the gin and sacrifice branch. Minimal foliage, oh, there's minimal foliage on interior branches and many weeping branches. So how would you style this Yamadori, Julian. So I'll kind of give um, uh, two lines of advice here. 
you know, one's in terms of uh, aesthetic and styling and one in terms of uh, horticulture and health. Um, you know, from the, the picture and, you know, from what Christopher says, uh, you know, the tree does appear to be um, on the weaker side. So a lot of that, you know, interior you know, yellowish brown growth, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how healthy that is or if it can be reliably considered a part of the design, if it might drop in the future. So, you know, from the, the health and horticulture side, you know, I would say the first step is, you know, one, remove all that weak or dead growth. Um, you know, get the tree strong, feed it, give it a lot of exposure to sunlight and interior. And, you know, when you get strong, healthy interior growth, you know, that's usable for a styling. Um, you know, then you could, uh, you know, consider, you know, per progressing further, kind of along the lines. I think I, Andy said that, you know, it's better to have, um, you know, an unstyled, but, you know, full and healthy tree than a, a styled tree that's dead. Um, but, you know, assuming the branches are viable and ready to be wired, um, as far as stylistically, um, you know, you do have, you know, several, you know, um, elegant uh, trunks and, and those, those low branches can be wired into place and utilized as trunks. Um, so I would actually, you know, potentially keep all the trunks on this tree um, and you wire them together in, you know, more graceful uh, feminine uh, forest kind of clump appearance. Um, you know, uh, you're out in the, the Pacific Northwest, Ryan, so you've seen a lot of, you know, the, the hemlock clumps and, you know, yeah. um, they have fir and spruce. Um, Michael Hagedorn, you know, he has re that really, really famous like, one. you know, what, his, what he does with um, uh, his hemlocks and whatnot. Um, but I feel um, uh, for this tree in particular, and, and uh, from what I know, uh, uh, Juniper, uh, Virginia, has really kind of fine... Uh, soft foliage um, so you know it might be good going for a very uh, a delicate bill so you know a soft uh, clumper forest where you use all the trunks um, in this design as opposed to you know a single trunk and laying out pads and branches yeah that's that's a uh, I like that idea I was thinking uh, originally kind of like a Walter Paul like candelabra style but I think those two can be since all the trunks come from down low. It, it definitely could be a pretty convincing clump style. One thing I also noticed is, I'll throw up an image for the viewers, but there's a, a back bud along the trunk pretty low down. So I feel like this tree, this species probably would back bud readily if everywhere was as healthy as like the exterior growth. Yeah, that's, that's definitely In a good year sign. Two. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Andy, do you want to take Anastasia's rose bush? She said, yeah, sure. Ed, I'm a beginner. I like the trunk and the root which is sticking out, but I'm confused as to which branch should be the apex and how it should be wired. Okay. Well, yeah, looking at the picture, like kind of the same as Julian, I'll do like kind of just quick horticulture, I guess, and then designing. I would probably with this seeing it, it's pretty like sparse. Like mm -hmm. there's not much foliage, at least this time of this photo um, was taken. So it's, I would probably just like let it, that's kind of what I'm doing with a lot of my material is just like letting a lot of it kind of grow out and get super strong and just like be insanely vigorous and then making selections based on there. Cause then you have more options, you know, if, depending on the species, you don't want to let too many things grow out cause then you'll get a bunch of ugly scarring, but roses, I mean, they're, it's more of a shrub anyways. And I think that the, I would go with kind of some more, it's not going to be a smooth bark beach, you know, it's a rose. 
So you mm -hmm. can probably get away with a little bit more like scarring and stuff. And I think with what it is now, there kind of is a small apex kind of forming there. If you cut back that middle long branch into that inner, into their bu inner bud, but I would probably just leave it a little bit longer and just let it grow. I do like the trunk. It's pretty nice. And it, I think it's already kind of looking like I'd make like a kind of a, yeah, just kind of like a slight windswept like style, maybe just with how it's going in that picture. But I would probably just grow if it was my tree. I would grow it out a little bit longer and get it get more options because it looks like there's not many uh, secondary branches from the photo. Yeah, that seems like good advice. It looks like there's a lot of new growth in response to a recent pruning. So give it a year or two, and it should fill in and give you more options. Yeah, they grow pretty fast. I mean, they're it's a rose, so. That'll be, it'll be fun to work with, I think, though. Yeah. So uh, my friend Marius from Instagram sent in a few different trees. Uh, he started with a multi-trunk quince. Looks like it's kind of a clump style. I might be tempted to uh, try to take some cuttings and make like a shoheen forest out of it. Because, I don't know, do you guys think the quince is kind of slow to thicken a trunk? Uh, I, I think when they're younger, at least from what I've seen, the, the quince can grow pretty fast. Um, mm. but, but the older, older quinces tend to be a little more slow growing. Okay. I have never worked with a quince, so I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I think I agree with Julian. I've seen at least even like the, I mean, if you even look at an old quince though and look at the branches that are, you know, the fresher shoots, they do tend to thicken quite fast if you let them run. So. I could, mm. but I think, uh, I don't know what variety of quince this is, but I agree with your uh, idea. I think it'd be kind of cool to make a shoheen or a chuheen forest with it over time would be nice. Kind of grow some separately, maybe get some a little bit bigger um, and then go from there. I think that would be kind of cool. Yeah, I guess uh, I, we'll talk more about forest later, maybe. But uh, Julian, do you want to take Marius's Shimpaku? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to see what's going on the, the, with the, the trunk in terms of the movement since the mm -hmm. foliage is covering most of it. Um, but from the base, you know, I, I can see, you know, it has been, you know, twisted in the past. Uh, uh, one thing I, I, I do see, though, it doesn't have any um, dead wood features. And, uh, you know, what you should do very early on in, in the development of junipers is start uh, cutting line uh, for the the shadi, the the deadwood. Um, uh, you know, with junipers, we really want to accentuate you know movement of the trunk, you know, visual interest, and you know, develop that you know contrast between the live vein and the dead vein. Um, you know, with developing um, uh, shadi on, on junipers, I mean, if you ever see those really cool plated uh, deadwood features. Um, and especially, uh, for example, if, if you've seen the, the junipers in Taiwan, um, most of those are all field grown, except they look very convincing as a, a yamantori. Um, and, and what they do essentially is um, you, you cut a, a shawty line, you know, following the movement of the trunk. And, you know, every year um, that campium that you cut is going to, you know, it's going to reach callus and, and roll over. Um, that cut you made and you'll recut it every single year. So you'll kind of get this layer of callus reforming and you strip it back. And what mm -hmm. this does, it creates a very natural layered, you know, terraced wood grain appearance. 
And since you are recutting the the shadi every year, you're encouraging um, the the ends that are left alone. It'll continuously grow wider and wider and wider as you spread out the deadwood feature. So you know, as the tree ages, you get a you know a non-uniform uh, a growth of the trunk, um, which develops you know a lot of visual interest. If you were to let this just grow freely without any work on the deadwood in the trunk, you just get a solid you know. Uh, cylindrical trunk for most of its life, you know, which lacks, you know, some of those qualities you would, you would like to see for or a juniper, at least what it lends well to. Um, that's something I would do right now. Um, aside from that, as far as the branch structure, it's really hard to see what's going on in this photo. Um, but, you know, junipers, it's a lot of uh, maintenance work in terms of removing, you know, weak growth or undesirable shoots, you know, going in, in bad orientations, you know, crotch growth. And you know, retaining uh, uh, healthy branches, preferably with back buds, um, to to create your structure. So, so right now it's kind of like there's a lot going on, um, but it, it can be cleaned up and reduced. So, uh, for creating the shari, I'll try to yeah. find a picture of the Taiwan junipers you mentioned to put up for the viewers. But uh, creating the shari, would you just take like an exacto knife and kind of cut? Yeah, that's, you can. Well, a lot of times you can use a uh, a sharpie or, or chalk to kind of draw the the, the shadow line um, mm -hmm. that you intend to do. Um, just one thing to note is um, you don't you don't want to go across um, the grain or avoid you know girdling the tree completely. Um, right. Um, you do have some you know leeway in terms of of you know not necessarily fully crossing the grain. You could uh, going along with the grain. You can cut the shadow. Uh, crossing it a little because um, you know a healthy tree it's still going to carry some of the water nutrients to the xylem the, the wood underneath and when you make shadi you're just cutting the cambium um, so there's some kind of tolerance and how hard you can work it and create deadwood features um, but generally you want to go uh, with with the grain of the wood um, so take like a chalk or a sharpie you know draw the line you want to do and just get an exacto knife and just cut out a strip and peel off the bark Okay, hopefully uh, he can try that out. I think he does have some pretty developed trees, so he might he might already be familiar with that technique, but I'm sure a lot of people out there aren't. And the last one from Marius, he didn't really give the species. Yeah, you can't tell what it is. I was thinking it's like a Zalkova or a Chinese elm. I can't really, yeah. I can't zoom in on the how I'm looking at it. I can't zoom and uh -huh. I can't tell. <laughs> Well, Maybe some kind of deciduous broadleaf. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking crabapple could be too. So, uh, Andy, what would you do with this mystery? Um, I'm trying to see where those branches go. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would probably do. I mean, that's the. It depends what you're trying to do with, I guess, in bonsai. Like you know, like Dan, he's trying to make ancient trees, and um, some people make trees that are more familiar to them. This one, I would probably try. It probably style a little bit more. Either shorten it and try to make like a shohin out of it because the trunk doesn't look super thick mm -hmm. um, and make like a smaller, like kind of like a shorter tree. I would probably shorten it, I mean, overall, just because there's kind of some long shoots. Or you can do more of kind of like a, a formal upright younger tree too. You know, there's nothing wrong with representing, bonsai can be like at any age you can be representing. It's just, I know Michael Haggard, in his, uh, I think it was in his new book, if you ever read it, it's amazing. Um, he was talking about how we really focus on those big trees and bulky trees, but 
like especially in like Kogafu, I know he said he compared it to a uh, steak and potatoes kind of dinner and not as much vegetables. And uh, I think that, you know, it's also, I agree with that. And I think it's kind of nice to do kind of maybe something that if you grew up somewhere where like in the city, like in DC, you know, there's a lot of trees that kind of look similar to that where they're mm-hmm. more upright and maybe kind of fun to mess around with more like an urban styling landscape tree. That's kind of what, that's probably what I would do. That's just my kind yeah. of weird quirky opinion, I guess. <laughs> mm. It's kind of interesting. I feel like uh, what I've noticed is a lot of the more seasoned bonsai professionals, they do prefer trees that look older, but then a lot of beginners, maybe just by the nature of material that they're starting with, their trees end up looking like a representation of a younger tree in the nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, style, yeah, I think that's the best I have for that one right now. Mm-hmm. Kevin has uh, some two Japanese horn beans and one Korean fur. And these kind of fall in the same category. Uh, I feel like you could cut them short and make like a small shohin style zelkova. Or actually they're uh, horn beans, so not zelkova. But you could make a, a shohin size or you could try to grow their trunks really fat with sacrifice branches. And um, I feel like I've heard that horn beams are slow to thicken their trunks maybe, so maybe that's not such an option. But one thing that I always think about for trees that are kind of tall and straight and don't have much taper is I think that those are more reminiscent of like a natural deciduous forest. So if you were to plant these two trees together and maybe take some more cuttings, I'm in a, a forest phase because Ovanis um, visited our club here uh, right before COVID, it was like January or December or something. And so he talked about how to make a good forest. And so I've been kind of, I, I've been thinking more about how to do that recently, I guess. I think that's a good idea. I agree. I think that making, especially with, you know, younger material, Mm-hmm. making like and it's if it's lacking taper and stuff like that i think it is a little bit easier maybe and yeah. like to do a forest and then or maybe yeah. sometimes you know just throw it in the ground if you really want to that go, is always an option yeah throw it in the ground and let it grow big and get more branching and maintain it while it's in the ground don't forget about it because sometimes it'll end up with a big landscape tree that you can't really get out but mm-hmm. depending on your soil and how you can yeah, if you it, ever yeah. if you ever get a tree that's like just mysteriously losing its health or everything dies except for one branch. You don't know what to do with it. Just stick it in the ground for a few years if you can do that. And uh, maybe it'll give you some new options. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree um, with the idea with the, a forest. Um, you know, with, with a forest, um, not, not that it's not important, but you're less focused in terms of, you know, the, the individual quality of every tree and more of the, the, the composition. So, you know, this, what is the scale of the forest? You know, the, the image you're trying to convey, you know, how do you portray the depth with, you know, thicker trees and thinner trees, you know, more in the front, more in the back. You know, that, that composition becomes, and placement becomes a lot more uh, valuable. Um, so you, you can take, you know, younger material and, you know, maybe if you do some air layers and cuttings, you'll have, you know, varied size and, and shapes um, where you create a nice composition. Um, you know, in a forest setting, you know, having, you know, straight chunk trunks or very, you know, subtle feminine movement, you know, is, is acceptable and it looks very mm-hmm. graceful and very clean. Um, mm-hmm. if you don't necessarily need to have, you know, more of the lines of that, that meat and potato kind of tree with, you know, heavy taper 
and movement. Um, there's something to be said for graceful trees. And, you know, maybe for a, a, a newcomer in the hobby where they don't necessarily have accessibility to a lot of those older, nicer trees, um, using younger stock like this um, can, can give you more, you know, flexibility towards a, a forest design, which can mature to a, a very nice a bonsai in the future. So that, that's definitely a, a good consideration, I think. Yeah, that's really well said. It's kind of nice that the forest design like lends itself to trees that are more accessible to beginners, but it's also a very natural design because if, if you're growing in a forest, you know, you're all competing for light. So everything does shoot straight up before they grow kind of fat. Yeah. I also like what Julian said too about, you know, I think, uh, I think it was uh, Andrew Robson, one of Michael's students. Uh, I don't remember how to say his, his Instagram handle of Ryuku Bonsai, but he does oh, a yeah. lot of deciduous stuff. Yeah. And yeah. he's, he got me super excited the other day and I kind of got some younger, more very slight movement, more feminine style trunks, uh, ginkgos and other things just to kind of mess around. And he was had a Stewardia on there and he was saying that kind of the older, back when bonsai was still kind of forming in Japan, if you look at the pictures, there's a lot of, there is a lot more trees like that as well. And it takes a different type of appreciation and maybe a different mindset to uh, really get the full value out of what you can with the trees. And I think, uh, they do have their own place, especially for mm -hmm. beginners, which is kind of nice because you can do that and they still will age nicely in a pot, you know, after you get that initial movement while you can, I guess is yeah. what you need to do. Okay, Julian, uh, do you have any comments on the Korean fur that is also from Kevin? Uh, yeah, so as as far as you know some options uh stylistically so i'll just say you know what what this tree has going for it what it doesn't um uh you you do have a very um kind of movement list but but thin uh trunk so you know you have a, a few options uh to go about this um you know to some extent maybe you you can manipulate and, and bend the trunk um i don't know how necessarily pliable the wood of this species is um, but if it tends to be on the softer side, um, that's one way to, you know, introduce some movement into it. Um, mm. If the wood tends to be very hard and stiff, um, when you do like really big bends on the trunk, what tends to happen, you get really kind of wide, like rainbow uh, bowing in the trunk. It, it looks very, you know, contrived and, and uh, not necessarily uh, very uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing. So if that's the case, I would avoid trying to do um, uh, bends on the trunk if you're not unable to get, you know, visually interesting movement. Um, aside from that, you know, since it is the more thin or graceful trunk, um, what you want to do is you want to get rid of, you know, heavier branches. You're going more towards that uh, literati type feel. Um, you need to establish an apex on it, which is, you know, probably can be done with one of these smaller side branches and that, you know, that large shoot going up certainly can be reduced. And, you know, just go for a, a softer, uh, graceful feel. Um, but aside from that, this is fairly raw uh, material. Uh, so I guess there's a lot of options, you know, long-term stylistically, depending on what you do with the tree. Okay. Andy, you're up. So the next one is from Hector. A lot of people might know him. Uh, he's an administrator on the Bonsai America Facebook group. Um, so what do you see as a pot combination for this tree and how would you style this particular tree? And it looks like it's a Rocky Mountain Juniper that has a little mm -hmm. bit of 
the blue color in the foliage. Yeah, it's really, that's a killer tree. I'm like, mm -hmm. damn, I would like that in my collection. That's for sure. Um, I think it'd be cool if we could all just like quickly just say what we think and uh, maybe then discuss that. Um, with this, I tend to like putting American trees in American pots, but I think that this would look nice in like a like a, some kind of Japanese unglazed pot as well. Maybe it has that little feminine, I would probably be like a rounded corner, not so sharp and like maybe like a little bit like a strong, but like not too masculine, maybe a little bit of curve, like curved in the corners and maybe like a nice lip because I do yeah. like this small deadwood. I can't see if there's any other deadwood in the foliage, but it is a, it is like a very strong tree. I mean, you can just see even with it in the box, you're like, dang, that is like, it got some power. So I think a, like a rectangle would be nice. Um, and then I would definitely, I think I would go unglazed or, you know, you can go the complete opposite and go Dan style and it probably look really sweet on some kind of more organic, like rock, maybe a rock or something like that with like a kind of some texture or something like that. Yeah. Especially at this angle, it looks like it's been so beaten down that a rock yeah. bring out a lot of like natural, like story of struggle kind of character to it. I, for some reason, the pot I'm imagining for this is like a blue color, like a, hmm. I don't know, like ocean blue, maybe. It would kind of add to the color of the foliage almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not an expert on pot selection, though. So usually I go with whatever I have around that fits. That's my stage right now. Yeah, at the museum where we have a lot of things in pots already, and we're kind of running lower on nicer pots. But I, I would like to hear what uh, Julian has to say about that, I guess, because seeing i'm sure you see a lot of big junipers in japan that and have very nice pots with them too mm -hmm. yeah so uh I, I do agree a bit with what uh andy said in, in terms of um you know th this is a, a masculine tree um but you do have some you know feminine and softer qualities with you know you know the, the subtle wispy movement uh to the right um so i would say a soft cornered you know rectangle um, would, would probably look quite good uh, uh, with, with a bit of lip. Uh, uh, I, I think there's, you know, potentially a lot of pots that could work. Um, best is just to see the pots, you know, usually how when we, we pick a pot uh, for the tree in the nursery, uh, since we have, you know, just tons of full pots, you know, underneath the benches and in the storeroom. And we'll kind of, you know, my oikata will assess the tree and, be, um, and he'll look, okay, this is the rough size of the pot, uh, the dimensions that will you know, accommodate this root ball and aesthetically look good. And then we'll go run through the nursery, see spots that meet that size criteria, and we'll we'll do a test. We'll we'll get a row of pots, we'll get the tree, and you know, you know, my boss isn't he's he's not a man of many words. Uh, so he'll just kind of um, um, just point for you to switch the pot and somebody will pick up the tree, we'll uh, swap a pot underneath it and kind of just visually check each one to see which one you know, you know, bring the, the point of the, the pot is, is it should work in, in cohesion with the tree and the design, but ultimately what you're showcasing, you know, is the bonsai. Um, so do you, you don't want necessarily something that's visually too strong uh, to pull away from it. Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, a soft, a soft rectangle, I think would look pretty good. Yeah, I think it kind of depends. Sorry, really quick. I was like, also your preference too. I know, like, like I said too, it's like, it is for me, I do like generally putting like Japanese trees in Japanese pots and North American trees, but that's kind of my own stylistic preference. Um, 
but so there is, I mean, but there is so many North American potters that are doing really cool stuff. Um, and I think that that would kind of come down. It would look super cool in a, it looks super cool in a box to me. <laughs> so I think it, <laughs> it does, true. like Julian said, it has like a lot of potential to be in, I think, and it's, you know, it's like bonsai is, it's always changing. So, you know, maybe it'll be in a nice pot for a while and then maybe a branch will die or the direction will change more to the right or something of the overall canopy. And that could even mm. change the style of the pot as well. This is also interesting too, because I feel like you could rotate it and have those deadwood branches going more straight up and kind of change the direction of the foliage and it would still look like a pretty cool tree. This one has oh, a lot. Wow, yeah. But uh, actually, I think since Hector submitted this tree and since or from that time to when we actually got around to recording this, I think he has selected a pot. So I'll, I'll put up a picture of what he ended up doing. Yeah, I'm curious to see. Mm. Uh, the next one is Mira, who sent in a wisteria. She said, this year, it finally decided to bloom for the first time, and the bark is aging nicely. How do we increase back budding on the branch with older bark? Now, uh, from this picture, uh, I, it's kind of hard to make out which branch has the older bark that she's talking about. So maybe we could just talk about how would you increase back budding in general to give her more options if she doesn't like her branch options right now. Um, I would, I guess, in my mind, I would just fertilize and uh, let it grow for a year or two and see what happens. I have a wisteria in my yard that's a bit of a exploding ball of foliage right now. And that's just from me not pruning it for two or three years. <laughs> so I got to get around to it. But uh, I, that's one way, maybe. I, you could also prune hard and see if a, a bud emerges. I don't know. Do you guys have comments on how to get wisteria to back bud? I don't have much experience with them, honestly. I just took a bunch of cuttings, so I'm like, to have to be continued for my experience with them. Okay. I, mean, I yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't have uh, much experience with wisteria either. Um, but you know, the general rule of thumb when you want to produce back budding is you know you you allow at least for deciduous trees, um, you know you allow the tree to gain vigor, you know, for the runners to extend and grow strong. And, you know, after you've established, you know, that, that strength and extension, um, you cut them back, which then facilitate, you know, budding on older wood. Um, so that, that's, you know, the, the general idea of getting back budding. Um, as far as if there's, you know, some specific techniques with wisteria, um, I'm not too qualified to answer that. Well, hopefully in the next uh, year or two, she'll see some more options there. Um, the next one is from Ivan, and I believe it's Julian's turn. He said, I recently acquired a Japanese black pine. Speaking of its age, my guess would be anywhere from 9 to 12 years old. Last year, it was repotted by its previous owner and put in not-so-well-draining soil. This year, right after I got it, it was half-bare-rooted and put into a large container, larger container with proper drainage. I used Boone's Mix as my substrate. What are my chances of getting anything good out of this tree? And what would be my next care steps? Thanks in advance. And so he has some pictures of before and after his repot. Okay, so you know, for for um, I guess in kind of developing and styling a lot of coniferous trees in general, you want to bring you know visually the the best aspects of the tree, you know, while hiding you know the the aesthetically not as as uh, pleasing parts. 
um, you know, for the, for this tree in particular, um, you do have, um, you know, some uh, some nicer, a uh, softer movement in the upper part of the trunk. Um, but I'm not I'm not digging the the lower part of the trunk too much, where it's very straight. Um, it's hard to tell from the photo, but potentially if if you rotate the tree, there could be a, a better trunk line that's you know a bit softer and graceful instead of kind of that harsh you know lower line in a chop, which then leads into the upper part of the trunk. And that'll be something to explore and 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 in person you'd have to assess for yourself to see is there a better trunk line that that showcases more movement um and as far as developing the tree and you know this goes in line with what i, I talked about in the, the beginning in that you know there's a stage of development for every tree um you know the the trunk on this particular tree it looks like it might be you know somewhat old beginning to develop barking and whatnot um, but it's gone, I, I would say, maybe like too quick into branch development. Um, one thing you'd have to know uh, is that once you start really uh, developing and working on the branching, you know, the, the rate the trunk thickens is going to be uh, quite slow. And you're not necessarily going to be developing significant girth or taper into that. Um, but going into that, if, if you know that and you're okay with it, it's fine. But if your intention is to kind of have a much larger and stronger trunk in the future, um, it's not very realistic if your focus is developing uh, the branches. Um, but saying you want to utilize as much as what's currently there, you're not thinking of any major developmental or design changes, um, I would say first find the 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 softest and most graceful trunk line which minimizes the straight part of the lower section and if possible to obscure that kind of very angular chop in the midsection and i would consider um you know reducing uh potentially the lower branch a little bit um to kind of keep uh the branches you know a little bit more in scale um with the trunk uh but you know long term you'll have a lot of options there mm -hmm. So would you say if if the uh, bud emerges lower down on the trunk, maybe it would be good to grow it out as a sacrifice branch? Uh, yeah, that, that's certainly um, a possibility. Um, if if you do want, if you wanted to, you know, increase some girth, uh, that that that's definitely um, an option. Looks like it's a decent start so far. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting, the, uh, the straight bottom trunk, I guess this is what you're getting at, Julian, it doesn't mirror the movement in the branches. So there's like some discord in the vision, in the appearance there. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. Um, you know, visually you wanna be, you know, kind of consistent, you know, with, with the, the movement in the trunk, the movement in the branches. Um, you wouldn't want, say for like a, a formal upright tree you don't want a dead straight trunk but in like extremely wavy twisty branches it'll, it'll look mm -hmm. really contrived and you know vice versa um so you know with bonds with bonsai you know we want to make you know a, a convincing image you know everybody's going to have their different tastes which is respectable and fine um but whichever way you go you want to you want to create a convincing image for what your intention is um so trying to create elements that you know, help complement each other and um, and fit well with each other can kind of visually make a tree a lot stronger and a lot more interesting. You know, a, another kind of more a brute force method um, would be uh, to to bend the trunk and and certainly there's people who do a lot of heavy bending with 
uh, conifers. Um, that, that's another option, um, but it, it would kind of be up to the owner and kind of the vision uh, that they have. Okay. The next and actually the final tree for today's episode is from Dendrocentric on Instagram. And he asks for Andy, how would you go about styling and improving ramification on this desert olive, which is Vestiera neo-Mexicana? After purchasing this tree from nursery stock, I did some initial pruning last year. And this year I've done just a little bit of wiring and pruning. The crown is a mess and I'm not sure what direction to take it. I can't even decide which stem should be the dominant one. Obviously I'm very new at this. Any and all advice is welcome. Thanks. Well, uh, just from this picture, like, well, I really don't have any experience with uh, desert olive. I have, we have some olives in the collection, um, but you know, they're already styled. So I'll just do the maintenance job on them, which is a little bit easier than having to choose. But um, I was just seeing this, I mean, not being able to rotate it from this angle, I would, I mean, I would choose the probably, I can't see where that lowest branch is coming. I can't see if it's going all the way across or where it's coming from, but I would do like, I'm kind of a dual, like twin trunk kind of like, or kind of a mother daughter, but they're coming up a little bit higher. So kind of like a dual trunk and I have two apices. You can kind of, I would probably reduce that left one just on from this front of the picture. It maybe could change a hundred percent from if you change it 180 or whatever. But um, from this picture, I would probably reduce the left side down a little bit more than half and start developing that a little bit more and shorten the right sides too. I think it's a little bit tall for uh, the trunk size from what I can see in here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really know uh, what the desert olive looks like. I mean, I'm really one for a naturalistic styling as well. So I don't really know what the desert olive's growth habits are. Um, or, or honestly, where they even, I'm guessing that'd be somewhere in like, Europe or something like in the desert. I'm not really sure where. Do you guys know where those are from? I'm, I'm uh, guessing uh, around Mexico, like the southeastern. Oh, Mexico's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I I would probably try to like look at trees from that environment and try to mimic some of those uh, movements. Um, you know, and, and it's really insane. Like you know, don't. I, I don't know if they could be. I wouldn't really wire it. I think that I was. I don't know if they heal well from scarring or whatnot. Um, but I would reduce, it's a little bit tall for the trunk size is my main thing. And I would try to get, it looks fairly healthy, like fairly strong. So I feel like if you did some cutbacks at the right time of year for olive, which I also am not sure because I don't have one, um, you could probably get some back budding uh, lower or get some stronger growth in those lower branches, which are very important, you know, especially like to preserve those lower branches is key. Yeah, I had the same thought about making it kind of a twin trunk. Uh, I think a few months ago, I published something on the Puget Sound Bonsai Association's YouTube channel. It was an old video from like 2000, the year 2000. Uh, we had Colin Lewis come and do a demonstration on a twin trunk Japanese black pine. And from watching that old video to upload it, I learned a lot about the design of twin trunks. So I'll send that link to uh, Dendrocentric and I'll post it in the show description so you guys yeah, can. That'd be good. Yeah. yeah, it it's definitely it kind of lends itself naturally to twin trunks since one dominant trunk is going straight up and then there's a thinner one kind of shooting off to the side looking for sunlight. Yeah, and I guess I was talking about shortening too, and now I'm thinking about it. I mean, you could leave that right side taller. There's, I mean, you can even go. 
I guess you, we have to kind of think a little bit even more wide. You can always do a kind of a more Penjing-ish feel and do kind of, I feel like a lot of Penjing, at least in the collection here, is uh, from Stanley Chin. And he has a lot of tall and narrow trees with, with slender, more slender mm. uh, trunk lines. So I could see shortening that left side and then having that right side kind of be like kind of weirdly taller and maybe having a different, more uh, Penjing feel as well. That's just another idea, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that tree would be a fun one to work on over the next Yeah. Year. It's got a lot of- I would of... like to have an olive. Uh, can you grow olives in DC? Do they grow well there? We have, a, we have an olive forest at the collection and it's been there for quite some time from Melba Tucker, um, who's mm -hmm. from Julian's area over there, I'm pretty sure. And then um, yeah, we had a big olive that's in Chicago now and um, they've done pretty well here. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, that's all I got for trees from people this week. So thank you guys, you, Julian, and Andy, for this talk show. Uh, don't know if or when we'll do it again, but I'll leave the link up on my website for people to submit more trees, and then we'll see what, what level of interest there is. A lot of people might be shy, too shy to bring their trees to like a formal club workshop if they don't think that they're, or if they think that they're too new or something. Um, so I, hopefully people enjoy getting some styling advice via this format. Do you guys have? Yeah, any I enjoyed. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, too. it was fun talking to you guys. I actually, Julie and I have been messaging for years, but we never actually met face to face or anything. So this is the closest we. This is face to face in this this day and age uh, now. Yeah, <laughs> as close as we're gonna get right now. <laughs> Do you guys have any? Uh, Bonsai activities you're up to that you want to plug? Go ahead, Julian. Uh, I mean, not, not, not too much. Everything has, has been kind of on hold for me, you know, because of the whole um, uh, COVID situation. Uh, but, you know, hopefully um, if things improve the next few months, I'll try to get more involved in the, the club scene. And, you know, I'm working with uh, a few friends or customers and, and hopefully can get the ball rolling there. Uh, but for the time being, uh, not, not too much. If people wanted to uh, contact you for uh, doing like a club demo or uh, uh, private work on their trees, how would they get in touch with you? I, I mean, uh, any of my social media is fine. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, my website, I have a, uh, a contact page. You can uh, leave a, a message or email too, which I, I read all of them. So um, mm -hmm. any of those are fine and I'll get back to you. Okay, I'll leave the links in the description below the video. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Andy? Do you have any social media to plug or? Um, not really. I'm unlike Julian, like I kind of have a different path than Bonsai. I'm doing curatorship kind of mm -hmm. path. So I, this is actually kind of cool for me because I don't really, I see a lot of uh, Sergio Kwan, Jack Sussick. They have, uh, Owen was doing study groups and uh, at, my, at the Arboretum and Shout out to all those guys who have taught me a lot and I got to see them. And this is kind of cool for me because I maintain high, like far, developed trees. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing more of the refinement work. Uh, I'm sure Julian is too in Japan, but uh, as a bonsai professional, you know, it's a little bit different. And for me, I guess um, I'm excited for to watch Julian's career uh, in bonsai, like continue in Japan and then coming back, I would be very uh, honored and excited for when you do come back and are travel. Well, when you go back and then come back <laughs> I went to uh, travel to DC and uh, I'll show you around here and it'd be fun to style a tree together. I think uh, I was saying about collaboration and 
I thought about it really hard a couple of weeks ago. And I think for me going forward with my own personal collection, I want to have more uh, collaborative trees that mean something to me. Um, I have a ponderosa pine with Jennifer Price that we did. And it, it means so much to me having my friends who are bonsai professionals supporting your guys' work as traveling professionals and being able to have that piece of work as my like uh, in my own collection and to bring it further in age is really exciting uh, from a curator standpoint. So that's kind of my future and um, excited to meet you hopefully too. Ryan, you'll be closer to me. So get out to yeah. DC and come I'll be driving distance. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, come out and visit and come to the collection. I'd be happy to show you around and hang out in my place. And cool. I've actually never, never been to the uh, National Penjing Museum before, so, or Bonsai and Penjing Museum. So I'll definitely have to yeah, make come. Uh, are there any exhibits coming up for the museum that you can talk about or are they all like top secret classified? No exhibits right now because we don't even know when we're going to open and uh -huh. it's and we're we already I deflowered all the azaleas before they even flowered just to like debutted all of them just to get them stronger and it's kind of been a silver lining you know everything is just growing out and we're able to let it grow out because that's a challenge in a collection where we have so uh -huh. many trees on display is uh, yeah. balancing you know that strong, uh, energy and uh, keeping it view uh presentable to a certain extent we do let things get a little bit shaggy to try to but also presentable but now it's like man we're just letting things go get crazy letting lower branches get super strong and you know trying to continue the work of people like you know that julian is following in their steps and you know footsteps and these artists made amazing things and i want to be able to keep them alive and growing <laughs> so this is good coronavirus is good for the health of the trees there that's for sure yeah <laughs> let them have a break from being pruned all the time i guess it's kind of a cycle of shagginess and then refinement and more shagginess and more pruning so yeah i know my collection wants me uh to be at work more i think i'm <laughs> i'm over overworking a couple of things so i'm trying to uh stay away from them i'm just trying to enjoy them without touching them <laughs> at this mm. point remember what you said uh, a healthy dead tree better than or a healthy <laughs> yeah. healthy unstyled tree, better than a better dead, than tree. A dead tree yeah uh okay cool. and if anyone wants to find more of my work i've got my bonsai blog right to tree com, and uh i i have a lot of stuff on there from dan robinson and my one once i come out to ohio i probably work with some different artists out there so we'll see what's in the future there uh yeah thanks for joining the call yeah thanks, guys. thank you for hosting it ryan See you guys later. All right. Later. Bye -bye. Today's episode has been recorded, produced, and edited by Kevin Ferris and Ryan Houston. Our music was provided by MIDI Cancer. To find more music from MIDI Cancer, check out their SoundCloud and Bandcamp pages. To find more information on the podcast, please check out our Instagram page, Bonsai Time Podcast, and our website, bonsaitimepodcast.com. To stay in touch with us, Kevin's Instagram is Kevin underscore Ferris PNW and Ryan's website is right2tree2.com. You can find these links in the description below. Thank you for listening and bonsai on.